going to preach the whole chapter. It just proved that there was just too much for me to tackle. So we'll look at verses 1 to 9, uh, 1 to 8, sorry, verses 1 to 8, and, um, and then I'll explain what it means. So have your Bible with you. It's Zechariah 9, page 947 in the church Bible. This is the word of the Lord. Verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind, and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart, and heaped up silver like dust, and fine gold like the mud on the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike her down her, down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod, and I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. And it too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Uh, Clearly a challenging chapter of the Bible, a chapter that we uh, need help understanding. So why don't we come before the Lord Let's ask his help in in understanding this text, and then I'll explain it to you. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, uh, we come to these parts of the Bible that are at times difficult to understand. We pray that you would give us understanding, that you would make this passage clear to us, and that we might understand this passage in light of the gospel and in light of uh, Christ's finished work on the cross. Um, Be with us tonight, and um, uh, Lord, use this word to equip us for uh, service to you and uh, life in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, um, if you ever get a chance to go to London, um, according to John Stott, there's this, there's this place in London. Uh, it's the Waterloo Bridge. And standing on the Waterloo Bridge, below you is the Thames. Behind you is the Big Ben, that iconic uh, tower in London. And then in front of you there, is, uh, there are these two domed buildings. And to your left, on top of the one dome, is this statue. She's called Lady Justice, and she towers over uh, a criminal court. In one hand, she has a sword. In the other hand, she has uh, scales. And she's blinded to symbolize her impartiality. And she embodies and, and represents this principle of justice. That principle that says you reap what you sow. Uh, This principle that says crime deserves uh, punishment. But then if you go to the next dome, uh, next to uh, Lady Justice, you'll see St. Paul's Cathedral. And on top of St. Paul's Cathedral is a cross. And it's a symbol of mercy. And so tonight, uh, as we study this passage, I hope to take you from justice to mercy, from Lady Justice and her sword to the cross, that, that we can understand uh, God's mercy in light of his justice. 
And so we'll visit both domes tonight. But let me ask you as we get started, as you read this chapter, and you see even maybe the heading in your Bible, what word comes to mind as you read this chapter? There's a lot of things that might come to mind. The word that comes to my mind is either judgment or justice. As I read this text, that's the first thing that came to my mind. That's the conclusion I came to reading this chapter. If we look at the history of Israel, crimes have been committed against Israel. In the year 722, uh, this massive uh, empire invaded the northern kingdom and, and, uh, and declared war on Israel. And then in 586, another kingdom, Babylon, another massive kingdom, came and invaded Jerusalem and just laid it to waste and burnt down the temple and carried off all of its people into exile. And then in 539, the Persians took over the Jews. And even though they allowed the Jews to return to Jerusalem, they, uh, they still enslaved them and left them in exile for some time. And then throughout history, we know that the Philistines uh, were a thorn in the flesh of the Israelites, especially as they were trying to rebuild the temple. So the point I'm making here is that God's people have been knocked around. Imagine if you've been knocked around. Imagine if you've been mistreated. You would want justice. And I think that's exactly what the Israelites, the God's people here, are longing for. They're longing for justice. They're longing for all these wrongs to be made right. And what Zechariah promises here in this chapter is justice. What he's saying here is that all of these wrongs are going to be made right that God's people will one day receive justice. And we see that, that promise of justice in chapter 1. We see it again here in chapter 9. Justice is promised here in chapter 1. And we see that God speaks this message of justice through his prophet Zechariah. Uh, if you look at verse 1 with me, and we'll look at the Bible as, as I'm preaching. In verse 1, we see that God speaks through Zechariah. It says that there's an oracle. Well, what's an oracle? An oracle is just, um, it's like a prophecy. It's God speaking through someone. And God is speaking through Zechariah. And again, he's saying justice will be served. Served against nine cities scattered across two kingdoms. And you'll, you'll notice in your text that there's a bunch of cities listed here. Uh, five of those kingdoms, uh, five of those cities belong to the kingdom of Persia. And in verse 1, we see that uh, Hadrach and Damascus are listed. In verse 3, we see Hamath, Tyre, and Sidon are listed. That brings us to 5. And we read in, in uh, verse 2 and verse 3 that the kingdom of Tyre is especially in view here. Tyre stood out. Tyre was this kind of magnificent city. It was uh, like the New York of the ancient world. The people of Tyre were wise, we read. Uh, not wise in like a, uh, a Christian sort of way or a godly sort of way. They were wise in a shrewd way. They knew how to govern themselves really well. They knew how to run a city. And then if you look at verse 3, we'll see that Tyre was also um, extremely powerful, we read that there's ramparts that, that surrounded their city. What's a rampart? A rampart is just a big wall. 
They were a powerful city. And also, they were a wealthy city. And we see that in verse 3 as well, right? That the, their, their city was filled with gold and silver. We, we see that the, that the gold and the silver were like mud and dust in the city. So this is, this is a, a powerful, wise, wealthy city. A city that people would be proud of. And then we see four other cities, right? In the text. We see Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and Ashdod. And these were Philistine cities. Now, the question is, who were the Philistines? Well, the Philistines were these obnoxious, relentless, irritating enemies of the Israelites. You might remember the Philistines from the story of David and Goliath. Goliath was a Philistine, and he was this, this giant that taunted uh, David. You might remember the Philistines from the story of Samson. Samson was captured by the Philistines, and, and, um, and his eyes were unfortunately gouged out by them. So these are not nice people, and they are the enemies of the Israelites. So there's nine cities in total. Some of them are Persian. Some of them are Philistine. Look back at verse 1 again. God pronounces justice, judgment against these cities for what they've done to God's people. And what he says here, if you read verse 1, is he says that God is against them. God is against them. Now, just process that for a moment. The God we are talking about here, the almighty, all-powerful all-knowing God of the universe, you know, the God who designed volcanoes and lava and lightning and, and the oceans and the mountains and the sky and the seas, that God is against them. He opposes them. It's kind of like a human saying to a grasshopper, I oppose you. I'm against you. Now look at verse 4, and there are three verbs in verse 4. This is how God is going to show justice to them. It says in verse 4 that he will strip them, strike them, and swallow them. That doesn't sound nice, does it? Strip, strike, and swallow. He will strip their wealth, he will strike her at sea, and he will devour her. He will swallow her up by fire. So he's going to, basically, the message here is that he will hold them accountable for what they've done. He's going to punish them for their crimes. And we have to remember that these are not innocent people. You know, this is not like Switzerland here. <laughs> We're talking about people who are truly, you know, ratbag kind of people. And they're being punished for their crimes. Now look at verse 5. The Philistines are watching this all unfold. They're watching this massive, mighty city called Tyre being destroyed. And what's their reaction to that? They're afraid. They're terrified. They're watching the walls collapse. They're watching the, the mighty ships get destroyed. They're, they're seeing this Goliath of a city being laid to waste. And they know that they're next. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, Ashkelon is afraid. Gaza is in anguish. Ekron feels hopeless. We have these adjectives, these descriptions of what they're feeling. They're, they're terrified by what they see. Because they know the crimes they've committed. And they know that they, they're next and that they're going to receive punishment as well. And what, this is actually really fascinating to me. Um, I'm a bit of a history nerd. 
and I like this kind of stuff, but um, 200 years after this book was written, 200 years after this prophecy was written, Zechariah, um, and remember Zechariah is the one who predicts this, this prophecy comes true. In the year 322, the Greek king Alexander the Great, he comes down from Greece and he invades all of these cities and he strikes them down, he strips them of their wealth and he swallows them up into his empire. Just as Zechariah said 200 years earlier. And God uses Alexander as an instrument um, in a way to execute this justice. To show the Israelites that these nations can't just do whatever they want. They are not above the law. And he shows them justice. And we need to take note of this. There's an important lesson for any one of us uh, who are reading this part of the Bible. God is just. And I think that the principle here is that we are accountable. I mean, we're accountable in a lot of ways. I mean, you're accountable to your boss. You're accountable to your spouse. You're accountable... Uh, to your teacher. There are a lot of ways in which we are accountable. We are also accountable to God, and we are accountable to God for our actions. And let's just talk about justice for a moment and, and accountability. Now imagine this. I don't know if you can imagine this, but I, uh, I go and, let's say I go and steal Duin's car because, let's face it, he has a better car than me. I have a go-kart, and he has a Lexus, so I hotwire his car, and I drive into the sunset with Janelle, and we have a babysitter. <laughs> but how will justice be executed? You know, that's not right. I, I can't just steal Duan's car. Well, uh, first I need to answer for my crimes. I need to face up to Duan because I stole his car. I need to face up to the police officer who catches me because I'm not that good of a thief. I need to face up to the judge who sentences me, and then perhaps I'll need to face up to the newspaper that writes a story about me, because who wouldn't want to write a story about a pastor that steals cars? <laughs> and then I'll have to pay for the consequences of my actions. I mean, that's, that's justice. This is, that's the principle. We all know what justice is, and we all agree that that's, a, that, that that's right, for me to pay for the crimes that I've committed. But it's not just doing that I have to answer to, and it's not just the cops that I have to answer to. There's a higher authority. I need to give an account to God. I need to answer to God. Because, after all, God is the creator of this universe. Romans 14 says that we must all give an account to God. And so it's not just doing that I'm accountable to. It's God that I'm accountable to. And the Persians were accountable to God, and the Philistines were accountable to God, and the nations are accountable to God. Even our nation is accountable to God. War criminals are accountable to God. Petty thieves are accountable to God. Upstanding citizens and CEOs are accountable to God. Community leaders and stay-at-home moms are accountable to God. All of us are accountable for our actions. Now, perhaps you're thinking, okay, but my actions are not that objectionable. I've got a perfect tra track record. I don't steal cars. I'm not like the Persians. I'm not like the, Pharise uh, the Philistines. I'm, you know, like the Pharisee, you say, uh, I'm not like that tax collector over there. When compared to my wife, I'm a saint. Well, not only is that delusional, but it misses the point. See, when, you meet your, when we meet our maker, when we meet God, he isn't going to ask us, well, 
how well did your wife do? And he's going to ask you about your life. And how did you live? And what did you say? And what have you done? We're answerable to God for our actions. And we need to ask ourselves whether we've sinned against God and whether we deserve a punishment or to pay for the things that we've done. And, and we can ask ourselves, are the, th- the way that we live our lives, is it, is it worthy of reward or punishment? And we can ask ourselves that. You know, the seething anger I feel in my heart towards my neighbor, is that worthy of reward or punishment? My arrogance, is that worthy of reward or punishment? My self-righteousness, is that worthy of reward or punishment? My indifference, is that worthy of reward or punishment? I can go through any 10, 20, 30, 100 things in my life, and I can ask myself that question. Is it worthy of reward or punishment? What do you think? In our society, there are people who don't want to hear the answer to that question. People that don't think about that question and perhaps are uncomfortable with that question. But the Bible confronts us with that question. And Christ will return one day. And we we are accountable to him. We need to give an answer to him. But thankfully, the sermon doesn't end there. There's also a message of mercy in this chapter. See, the bad news is that before God, we stand guilty. But the good news is that the God we worship is merciful. This is part of his character. And the message of justice that we read about in verses 1 to 6, which kind of dominates the whole chapter, is not the end of the story. There's also verses 7 and 8. And if you're a careful reader, and I'll explain explain this more, verses 7 and 8 are about mercy. And it shows God's merciful character. Now let me ask you, what's the difference between mercy and justice? Justice is getting what you deserve. You know, you you do the crime, uh, you pay the time kind of thing. You reap what you sow. Mercy is you get what you don't deserve. That's mercy. And one of my favorite examples of mercy comes from uh, this scene from Les Miserables. And I love this storyline of Les Miserables. I don't love Hugh Jackman singing. But I do love the storyline, and I love this scene at the beginning of the story where this priest finds a man. His name is Jean Valjean. And uh, Jean Valjean is kind of a, a ratbag, kind of a, a guy. He's not nice. He's um, a thief. He's a crook. He's spent time in prison. And um, he's wandering the streets of Paris, and this priest welcomes him into his home. And in the middle of the night, Jean Valjean sneaks down to the kitchen and loads up his bag with silver, all of the priest's silver. And then he runs off. And then Jean Valjean gets caught by the police, and he's dragged before the priest. And the priest has every right to, to demand justice. The priest has every right to say, well, you get what you deserve. After all, Jean Valjean abused the priest's kindness and stole from him. But instead of showing Jean Valjean justice, the priest shows him mercy. Instead of giving him what he deserves, he gives him what he doesn't deserve. And he says to him, Ah, 
here you are. To the thief, he says, I'm delighted to see you. Well, how about this? I gave you, I'll give you these candlesticks also, which are silver like the rest, and for which you can certainly get 200 francs. Why don't you carry them away with your forks and your spoons? Instead of showing him justice, he shows this man mercy. That's mercy. It's giving someone something that they don't deserve. Verses 1 to 6 paint a picture of justice. Verse 7 and 8 paint a picture of mercy. Let me explain how. Look at verse 7. There's a small group of people that God spares from judgment. Small group of Philistines. Um, Again, these are the enemies of God. These are the guys who sent Goliath after the Israelites. And he spares this remnant. A remnant is just a kind of a small group of people, a portion of Philistines. And God shows them mercy. He gives them what they don't deserve. And as a result, they convert. They switch sides. These enemies of the Jews become Jews themselves. And they are adopted into God's people. They are um, welcomed into God's family. And look at verse 7. These former enemies of God, um, they're changed. They change their beliefs and their customs. Now, if you know anything about the Philistines, they had their own set of customs and their own religion and their own uh, rules. Uh, They had their own diet, which was different from the Jewish, Jewish diet. They had their own gods, which were different than the Jewish gods. They worshiped false idols. They ate non-kosher food with blood still in it. Uh, They liked their steak blue rare, which is forbidden in Judaism. And God changes these people. And in verse 7, and I'll explain this, it says that he takes the blood from their mouths. Now again, these are people who consumed a lot of blood. And what Zechariah is saying is God is going to stop that. He's going to change their diet. And he's going to take the abominations from their teeth. That's referring to idolatry. He's going to stop them from worshiping idols. He's going to clean up their lives, basically. And they switch sides, and they join the Israelites, and they trust in the Israelite God, and the Israelite God shows them mercy. He doesn't judge them. The full weight of his justice is not poured out against them because they trust in Israel's God. And there's a story in the Bible of another group that did the same thing. In 2 Samuel 24, there's another clan called the Jebusites, similar to the Philistines. They also changed sides. Not all of them, but a small portion of them, a remnant of them. And they joined the Israelites. So here, Zechariah is actually comparing this Philistine city, Ekron, to the Jebusites and saying that these people, they switch sides and they are going to be the object of God's mercy. Notice something else in verse 7. We are told that after they switch sides, they will become like a clan in Judah. They, they are going to become God's people, basically. Which means that everything that belongs to God's people will belong to them. The temple will become their temple. The prophets will become their prophets. Jerusalem will become their city. God's promises will become their promises. And now that they have changed sides, and now that they are part of God's people, they will fall under God's protection. Look at verse 1. In verse 1, we are told that God has his eye on them. Not only does he have his eye on on, uh, Israel, he has his eye on mankind. He has his eye on these people who he is going to show mercy to. 
And then later in verse 8, we see that, um, that God will camp around uh, his house and their city and the temple where they worship. But then in the second part of verse 8, it says that no oppressor shall march over them. So what's the message here? The message is that these former enemies of God, he's going to show love to them and he's going to show mercy to them and they fall under his protection. And again, the big idea here is that God is also merciful. Justice is getting what you deserve. Mercy is getting what you don't deserve. Now, if God were to execute justice here on the world right now, actual justice, where would that leave the world? Where would that leave um, our nation? Where would that leave, um, you know, Russia and Canada and Australia? You know, and the world's not a nice place. I mean, you can just watch the, the news and, and you'll see that, right? You see Putin bombing Ukraine. You see North Korea starving its citizens. You see sex being sold as a com- commodity. Um, you see all of these terrible things happening in the world. People getting away with things that they shouldn't be getting away with. When God looks at the world, what should he do? If he were to execute justice right now, where would that leave us? For thousands of years, the world has ignored God, denied God, fought against God, raised its fist at God, and mocked God. And God hasn't destroyed the world, as he did in Genesis 6. Why does God put up with it all? Why is God so patient with us? Well, because it's in his nature that he's patient. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But he puts up with with this world for us. He wants to see us experience mercy. He wants to experience lost people. He wants lost people to be reconciled to himself, that they might call out to him in faith, that they might be saved from judgment, that they might be saved from justice, that they might not be condemned. And so there's this picture here, again, of both justice Justice is the wages of sin is death. Justice is that we reap what we sow. Justice is that we need to own up to our crimes. But there's also this picture of mercy, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That all who trust in God will experience God's mercy. And I want to conclude with one more picture here. And this final picture is taken from the New Testament. And it's a picture that all of us are very familiar with. It's the picture of the cross. See, the cross is a symbol of what? Justice and mercy. The cross was designed as an instrument of justice. Just think about this. In the Roman Empire, only criminals were hung on the cross. When an onlooker viewed the cross, all they could see was a criminal getting what he deserved. In the Bible, to hang from a tree was to be under God's curse. When the Pharisees and the religious officials looked at Jesus on the cross, all they could see was a cursed man. The visible depiction of of the cross is grotesque, and it demonstrates how ugly sin and death truly are. As darkness filled the sky and the earth shook, God's judgment was poured out not on the world, but it was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross And let me just tell you the judgment that Jesus experienced on the cross 
What Jesus experienced in that moment was incomprehensible. It was worse than any, of the, any single one of the Old Testament judgments. It was worse than the flood. It was worse than the ten plagues. It was worse than the siege on Jerusalem. It was worse than the judgments we read about in this chapter. On the cross, Jesus was judged, but not for any sin that he committed. He was judged for every sin we've committed. He was held accountable for the things that we've done, for the things we've looked at, for the things that we've thought, for the desires we harbor, for the secrets we keep. This cross is a symbol of justice, but the cross is also a symbol of mercy. We put crosses on our steeples and in our homes and around our necks because this symbol has become so precious to us. Why is it so precious to us? Because every time we look at that symbol, we remember that we get what we don't deserve, that we have been spared from, from judgment, that we have been uh, spared from condemnation, that we have been spared from God's curse. When we look at the cross, we remember that we stand forgiven by God and that he forgives even the worst of us. We remember when we look at the cross that God is for us and not against us. The cross assures us of eternal life and a future in God's presence. You know, the cross is that physical, tangible reminder, right, of God's mercy, that we do not get what we deserve. And now, the final question. And it's the question that every minister asks at the end of the sermon. How do we as Christians live in light of this truth? Instinctively, you know, as our sinful heart wants to give people what they deserve, right? Instinctively, think of this. When someone cuts you off in traffic, what do you naturally want to do? You want to cut them off. You want to yell at them. You uh, Unleash the full wrath of your horn on them. That's what happens. We want to give people wrath. We want to, when people offend us, we want to give them judgment. When someone snaps at you, what do you do? You either snap back at them, or you show them your wrath by giving them the cold shoulder. That's, that's the sinful nature at work. That's instinctive. It's the sinful heart at work. I'm sure you've experienced it. I've experienced it. And instead of showing people mercy, what do we do? We show them justice. You show them wrath. You give them what they deserve. But in light of what I just said about the cross and, and what Christ experienced on the cross and as this act of mercy that he showed towards you, in light of that, you know, this incredible mercy, do you think it's better for us as Christians, Christians to show others wrath or justice or mercy? And we know the answer. Perhaps you've been the recipient of mercy before. Someone had every right to show you justice. Someone had every right to show you wrath. But instead of showing you wrath, what did they show you? They showed you mercy. They were like Christ to you. And you tasted and, and saw again this glimpse of God's mercy when they showed you mercy and you were reminded of the cross. It's an incredible feeling to be shown mercy. And we've experienced mercy. And we are called as Christians to show mercy to others instead of wrath. This is the real blessing that comes from the Christian faith. That when we 
understand mercy, we show mercy, we experience mercy from others. And so, in light of all this, we've, we've gone from, you know, we've gone from justice to mercy, and this week I want to leave you with that. God has shown us incredible mercy and grace. He showed it to us upon the cross, and now our response is to go therefore and to be people of mercy. Let's pray.